This is Radical Love Live, where we explore spirituality outside the boxes. Hey, fellow spiritual beings, it's Mark. And this is Kelly with Radical Love Live. Today we uh, have a special guest, Jonathan Merritt, and Jonathan joined us a couple days ago for one of our live events. Jonathan, welcome so much, and thanks for joining us on today's conversation and interview. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. It was great to have you on the program the other night, and great to have a chance to talk with you today. We wanted to start the conversation really going back to where we first became interested in your work and why we wanted to invite you to Radical Love Live was reading your book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, and talking about how people had kind of started leaving religious spaces and spiritual spaces and really had even stopped using spiritual language. And that's really part of the setting for where we started this program as well. Can you talk a little bit about the idea of that book and how you think language either disconnects or connects people? with spirituality? Yeah, you know, language, words are the primary ways that we carry meaning verbally. They're like empty boxes that we put meaning inside. And it's the thing that really sets us apart as homo sapiens from the rest of creation. Um, In fact, it's the one thing that even the best evolutionary theorists can't really explain how it evolved. In fact, some early evolutionists posited that it almost had to be interjected by a higher power because it doesn't make sense that it would have evolved. You know, all these years later, even linguists can't really explain how it is humans have this ability to communicate the way we do. So it's a remarkable thing, a remarkable tool, and one I think that we overlook to our peril when it comes to sacred speech, language that is helping us to think about and to describe spiritual realities, spiritual experiences, that language, sacred speech, is sort of going the way of the buggy whip. As we exist now in a post-Christian, post-modern, pluralistic society, many people are struggling to effectively use sacred speech. It doesn't mean that they're not having spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. Many people still are having spiritual experiences, but they're having difficulty articulating those things, dialoguing about those things. And for me, as I wrote in my book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, I I was arguing why that was happening, what was driving it, why I felt like it was a problem, and what it looks like to resurrect the vocabulary of faith in our day. One of the things that we talk about a lot is people who have left religious spaces or spiritual spaces for a reason, people who've been hurt or have been marginalized or, or, or feel some kind of trauma around religious spaces. Some of those people may even be shying away from sacred language or religious language for a very specific reason. Do you think that there's anything that's been lost in losing that language? I do. We, we want to revert, I think, to dualism in these individual cases. So it's bad or it's good? And the answer is yes. One <laughs> thing that I did for this book, I conducted a survey of over a thousand Americans and I said, how many of you have a religious or spiritual conversation on a regular basis? And by regular basis, we define that as about once per week. What we found was only about 7% of Americans say they have a spiritual or religious conversation on a regular basis. That number is pretty low, given how many Americans describe themselves as either religious or spiritual. It's actually quite low. The 1,000 folks that you selected for the survey, who were those folks? 
So the survey was by the Barn Research Group in cooperation with OmniPoll. So it was a scientific survey, which means they were randomly chosen and surveyed through telephone interviews in May of 2017. Among those folks who said, we don't speak God on a regular basis, we decided to ask them why not. And uh, we got a range of answers. About 20% said that they're just not really religious and these words don't have meaning for them, which is not shocking. But uh, many of them, about 10% of them, said, you know, I've had words that have been used in the past that were religious or spiritual, and they were used to hurt me. They were used to oppress or repress, to shame or to scold. And when words have a kind of memory attached to them, right? The the way that they're used changes the feel. They don't just have meaning. They have a feel to them. And when words feel toxic, people don't use them. What were some of those words, Jonathan? Because the survey was quantitative and not qualitative, we didn't say, okay, which which words? Guess is is that if you gave people a list of words, there would be some uh, that you would expect. I mean, I think a word like sin has been used that way. That's used as kind of a, not so much as a as a mirror through which to view your own life and your own behavior and to ask whether it's good and just and right or whether you should make tweaks and improvements, but as a window through which to judge other people's actions and behaviors. And I think when you you see sin primarily as that kind of window of judgment rather than mirror of reflection, then it can easily be weaponized. And uh, I think a lot of people have felt that that language has been weaponized uh, in their past. As a result, they go, you know, it's just not something I want to talk about. You know, in America, there's the dominant Christian religion and then a number of other different faiths. Was the study particularly based around any particular faith group or was it across the board as far as sacred language? It was across the board. Uh, we did take a oversample. We, we looked at just practicing Christians. So among practicing Christians, for example, you know, that number was 7% among all Americans. They say they speak God with regularity, but among practicing Christians, that number was only 13%. Even among people in the church, we noticed that the number was quite low. Even if like you you go to church, you know, you go to say the the cathedral there as Mm -hmm. as a congregation that meets on Sunday. And if only the most faithful show up on a Sunday, about 13% of those who show up, that's one in eight, speak God with regularity. So it's not just a problem that's generally happening, although it is happening generally. It's also a problem uh, among those who identify as Christian and are actually practicing their faith. We talk a little bit about the idea of talking God, because one of the things that we with Radical Love Live have talked about a lot and something that I've learned a lot about through this process is the words around religion and spirituality, particularly because some of the folks that we talk with are the of the kind of spiritual but not religious variety. But dividing up spirituality and religion, as you were doing this research, were you thinking of the two as distinct or do you think of the two as distinct or do you think of the two as, as the same? Um, neither. I think of the two as sort of overlapping. So I think all religion, at least in its in its intention, is spiritual, but not all spirituality is religious. So um, I think there are, there and and there's by the way there's a lot of disagreement about this. I mean, some people I know David Dark, who's down at Vanderbilt. You know, he wrote a book called "Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious," and he says, you know, if we think of life as kind of animating around beliefs and then creating liturgies and rhythms and patterns that are connected to those beliefs, and just about everything we do is religious. I tend to think that spirituality is anything that any action 
belief, posture, um, any anything that inserts you into that connection between the material and the immaterial, right? And the external and the internal, the seen and the unseen. And so there are a lot of people that can enter into that space that maybe don't even believe in God. I mean, I know people who who don't believe in God, but they believe in something else, right? A kind of right. energy, a kind of unseen thing. Yes. And there are plenty of people who are spiritual in that way, but they're certainly not religious. Mm-hmm. I tend yes. to think of religion as a kind of institutionalization of spirituality. So once it begins to kind of codify and and you you find things like um, physical structures, leadership. You have a, a code of conduct. You have a sacred text. Those kinds of things are the kinds of things that mark out a spirituality that begins to become religious. Now, a lot of people, and of course you probably know this now, I say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. It's the fastest growing religious identifier uh, of those in America who are 18 to 35. And those people still, the majority of them say they have some kind of prayer or meditation practice. They still say they believe in God or a higher power. So they're saying that as I connect to my own spirituality, I don't find that it's helpful anymore for me to do it in spaces that have the sacred text and the religious institution and the hierarchy of power and the physical gathering. And so they're finding spirituality outside of those religious orderings. And uh, so I would say they're overlapping circles, but they're not totally distinct and they're not totally the same. So can I put you on the spot, Jonathan, and ask you the question, is that a good thing, bad thing, or is it just reality? Yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, I'm very religious. Sometimes I find I'm religious and not spiritual. Um, but <laughs> well, that's self-aware. Wow. Wow. I, I feel convicted, to be, too. I tend, I tend to be very religious and also very spiritual, and I find God inside the church and outside the church. I find spiritual vitality inside religious spaces and outside of those spaces. So I tend to think of it almost in my life. Sure. The way way that it operates is almost like, I, I think I've said this before, like um, arm day and leg day at the gym. <laughs> I tend to think like there's different kind of muscle memory that you're going to find in the church and you're only going to find in the church. When you decide to gather with people that you didn't choose, you didn't hand select, but you've committed to live life next to them and to do it in a certain way that is not dictated by you, that you probably wouldn't do it that way if you were, if you were starting with a blank slate, but you're doing it because you believe it's helpful and you're tapping into something historic, I think that can be really helpful and informative. And it has been historically for other people, maybe who have experienced a kind of trauma in those spaces or don't have access to one of those kinds of institutions that will accept them for who they are. They have to make other decisions about how they're going to connect with God and spirituality that would be helpful for them. And so in general, I think religion can be a very good thing. But I wouldn't absolutize that. I wouldn't say that for everyone hmm. that they need to do that. If you, if a person came to me who'd been, you know, molested by a priest, I'm not going to tell them you need to be in church on Sunday. Right. I think there's work that needs to be done, and and that may not necessarily be possible for them in the near future or at all. And so you have to kind of look at, at people's individual stories in order to, in order to determine what what is spiritually possible and what's spiritually advisable for them. 
Wow. That's, it reminds me a little bit of some of the things we were talking about in the program the other night. I remember Alicia was talking about finding spirituality outside of spaces, just saying, like, I don't, I need to not be here. Yes. Finding it in other places, yes. which leads me back to that whole idea of we were talking about being marginalized, about spirituality being in the margins. So it's a, a very interesting idea of finding it outside and inside. One thing that we often find ourselves talking about in this program is we're talking about spirituality and people tie it to religions is that we end up interacting with people with a lot of different religious expressions. Uh, and as our season goes on, we have people from different religious traditions that are going to come and talk with us. I've talked about this in the podcast myself. As a, as a Christian, I sometimes have some challenges navigating that space between exclusive claims and universalist claims and looking at whether we're all kind of going up different paths up the same mountain or <laughs> um, Jonathan, when you were doing your work or even the work that you're doing now, are you finding yourself navigating any of those spaces or when you're interacting with other people of other faiths, how are those conversations going? I'll start within the Christian tradition and then I'll, I'll move outside of it. Sure. I grew up evangelical and um, there were a lot of blessings and burdens that came with that. On the one hand, I'm more competent with the Bible than a lot of my friends who didn't grow up in evangelicalism because we really loved the sacred text and we read it and we memorized it and we, in our own way, tried to inhabit it. I, I inherited a kind of passion for spirituality, a kind of connection to the divine that doesn't just feel rote or routine, but actually is the reason I wake up in the morning and stay up at night. And I can hold two things at the same time. I can be grateful for those things. And I can also recognize the shortcomings and the failings of that tradition, which are too many to enumerate here. Um, I now live at an Episcopal seminary here in New York. And what I have found is, is that they are oriented around prayer, liturgy, structure, and ritual that has its own set of gifts. It also has its own set of limitations. And I can stand in that stream and recognize its gifts and its limitations at the same time, because there are different pools of wisdom here from which I can draw. I talk to my friends who are Buddhist, who know far more about what it means to meditate, what it means to, to use the words of the psalmist, to be still and know that I am God. Um, they can teach me things. And if I begin to universalize my religious experience to say that um, everything that my tradition teaches me is all I need to learn or experience or hear, it's not just that it becomes naive and narrow. It's that you're really missing out on something. It's kind of sad that there are gifts that you can, you can receive from other traditions. You know, Thomas Merton once pointed out that all truth comes from the Holy Spirit, no matter who said it. Indeed. And you cannot say as a Christian, and the only type of person who would say this is somebody who has no knowledge of other faiths, you can't say that all other faiths are completely wrong. The reason is, is because you're going to find that many other faiths teach, for example, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. That's a saying that appears in the Quran. It appears in many of the Eastern texts. Uh, the golden rule is not exclusive to Christianity. And so if, if those um, traditions are 100% wrong, well, then your tradition can't be 100% right. Because you, <laughs> I'm still very Christian. 
I still believe in the in the Christian story as being absolutely true and good for people to to study and learn and to believe themselves. But I don't think that we that that in order to hold that story as true and central for my life, that I have to then somehow discount or shun or dismiss the many people who are experiencing the divine wisdom that comes through their own traditions. Without a doubt. Yeah. It seems that, uh, and it's not just exclusive to the Christian tradition and, and folks within our uh, faith that practice, but it seems that we do a zero sum a lot. You know, it's like we have to have whole truth. And if there's anything less than whole truth, and therefore you are invalidating everything that I believe, represent, or understand, thinking, no, there's actually more than probably one truth here. Now, that's my words, not yours. How do you feel about that? And as that leans into the question, does one have to be saved in that expression that we know in the Christian tradition of baptism? Depends what you mean. I mean, yeah. you know, there are a Catholic, true Catholic theology. If you if you say Roman Catholics make up a huge chunk of Christians, if you say, do Muslims go to hell? They will say, I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's true Catholic theology, and they're not exactly liberals, right? They yeah. go, oh, no, I can kind of tell you the things that will better your chances, right? But I can't yeah. tell you sure what happens on the other side. Yeah. Um, that's about where I am. Okay. Um, when it comes to, to eternal destinations, yeah. I'm an agnostic. I've never been there. I've never heard from anybody who's been there. The first two thirds of the Christian scriptures says almost nothing about the afterlife. It talks about ancestors going to a place, a place called Sheol, a place that's sort of under the ground. The New Testament often speaks of it in sort of um, vague and metaphorical ways. So I believe there is something that comes after this. I don't know if it's a conscious state or if it's a physical kind of a place that we would conceive of like this. I believe that there is a felicity in the afterlife, and I believe the presence of God is there, and I believe we're invited into that. You know, and I've never said this before, but I don't believe the notion of eternal conscious torment, uh, which is something that springs forth more from the writings of people like Dante than it does the Mm -hmm. New Testament. True. I don't believe that's reconcilable with a God whose name is love. But how all of it works out and who ends up where and, and how and trying to turn this, this beautiful gift of life after life, to turn that into a math equation really diminishes the beauty and the grace and the relationship that I think is so central to spirituality. I love that. Wow. I love that. In this vein, this is why our next live episode is going to be around uncertainty and ambiguity. We're sort of moving along that path that holding on to having it actually all figured out can be a form of avarice, just you know, and not something necessarily that we're invited to do. What you were talking about the afterlife, I was reminded of uh, on Instagram uh, a few months ago. I saw that um, the author Brian Zand was out in the Middle East, and he was posting pictures of this lovely, verdant park in the Valley of Gehenna, which is what Jesus was talking about when he was, ta- that was the word that he was talking about when he was talking about hell. And you look at that and say, if we're supposed to take that literally, then I'm going to go sit in that park. Maybe it was a <laughs> metaphor. Yes, maybe. On the one hand, I think those of us who hold the afterlife with less certainty 
we're we're often attacked by our brothers and sisters who are more um, given to certainty as being kind of um, culturally soft or like we're compromisers, and they they sort of question our motives that we, you know, we just don't want to say hard things or we don't believe the Bible. I think on the flip side of that, the belief in hell as a scary place that you will go unless you do what I say, unless you say my incantation and you you then behave according to what I need you to do, which includes, by the way, typically giving your money and getting more people to say the incantation. <laughs> There's that. Belief in et- eternal conscious torment, the belief that you get to win, but only if everybody else loses. Mm-hmm. That belief is good for business, and business is a boom in my friends. So... <laughs> If there are possible motives clouding the vision on one side, there are certainly motives clouding the vision on the other side. And I think what we have to do is both say, you know, I have to believe in my heart, guided by the text of my tradition and my own conscience and the spirit, capital S, that dwells in me. I have to I have to decide what I believe is true and act accordingly. And I don't have to be responsible for your beliefs and you don't have to be responsible for mine, but I think we can have that conversation without impugning each other's character. Agreed. Agreed. So let me ask you a question because I love where you're going with that. And you just brought up a point about when we set absolute and use that to a benefit as a point of view and quite honestly, you know, build a, uh, a uh, religious institution. My point is though, where does somebody cross the line when they say that somebody is evil or out of favor, uh, and they actually are doing damage. At at, at what point are they actually responsible for the words they're using and should be held to an account? You know, I think that we are all responsible for the words we use. And I do think that in in a bombastic age, we are too given to words that are that are explosive. And we, we throw around words too lightly, powerful words, I think I'll give you two H words. On the left, people who are on the left, and I'm speaking in general terms, obviously, they love to use the word hate or haters. And so if you don't agree with them on a particular issue, you're you're a hater of some group of people. You're phobic in some way. And many times that's true. And many times it's not. Many times there are people who feel deeply conflicted. And it's not that straight of a line to draw. But when we do that, it's a silencing tactic. It's It's a tactic that separates. It's a tactic that... Uh, shames, and it's a way to win a conversation. It's very powerful, and I think it's used in a way sometimes that's irresponsible. On the other side, I think from the right, they use the word heretic in a way that's irresponsible. A few years ago, we're talking about the afterlife. Rob Bell wrote a book questioning whether you know, people who didn't believe in Jesus as their quote-unquote Lord and Savior would go to hell, and he was sort of roasted on a public spit for that and called a heretic. He was, and not a way that that word has been used. You know, great Christian fathers, people like Origen, didn't believe in a traditional view of hell. Like, he was not, you know, a, a carte blanche heretic. And we use these words in ways that are irresponsible, but the same thing is true there. If you call somebody a heretic, you go, oh, you better not trust this person. You better not listen to them. They're outside of God's will. They're outside of God's grace. And it's a powerful word that now is is being so misused. We, we need to We need to be less concerned about drawing lines and more concerned about holding space for people that we disagree with. If we really believe, I think we're both maybe more progressive, if we really believe on inviting in the other, 
at some point as we we sort of self-segregate into elitist progressive echo chambers the other becomes our fundamentalist brother and sister and what does it mean to bring them in the person that the other is the person that you least want to be in their presence so i think at some point it goes both directions what does it mean to allow that person now it doesn't mean that you allow that person in your presence at the at your own safety it doesn't mean that you allow people in your presence who do physical or verbal or psychological violence to you. Like there are times that we have to separate from certain people because they are doing harm to us. And what I'm not saying is, is that everybody has to become a martyr. There are plenty of people in my life I have to say, I just can't be in your presence because what you're saying about who I am, it's painful for me. Yeah. And so I have to separate from you because of that. Right. But there are other people that I that I allow in my life who disagree with me deeply on deeply personal issues and our shared life can be a gift. And so there's I think a process of discernment there of trying to figure out what those lines are and and who you can uh, allow into your what's been called your ever expanding circle. I like that. Well said. And the reason why you asked that question is because just as you've uh, talked about, you know, the, the the people that are out in the margins who are hurt and who are traumatized. What is it that we need to do to enable their healing? Like, we get it that there's folks that they've been hurt by. Do we hold the people that hurt them to an account? Is that one part of the solution? And also, what are we doing to help those who are hurting and are traumatized? And simply, if if it's anything like what happened to me, I just simply turned my back to my own faith and spirituality and just shut down. Let me talk on kind of a global scale, and then I'll particularize it. Yep. A few years ago, I traveled to Malawi and um, met with some farmers there, and I was working on a project related to climate change. And in Malawi, climate change is not just a political football. You know, there are crops that can no longer be grown that are staple crops. There are whole fields that are lay fallow now, and farmers can tell you. I I stood in uh, ravines of sand and had people tell me that these, these used to be flowing rivers with banana trees on the banks and they provided fish and food. There are two things that we talk about when we talk about how we heal from the trauma of climate change. You talk about mitigation and you talk about adaptation. Mitigation is where you you sort of go up to the source and you turn off the faucet, right? We talk about carbon taxes, we talk about burning fossil fuels. You have to turn off the faucet. You have to keep it from continuing to happen. But the problem is, is the water's already been running and there are people who are drowning. And so you also have to talk about adaptation. And so we were trying to talk about how we could educate farmers there on new new uh, crop rotation techniques, how to how to grow different kinds of crops that they're not even familiar with in different seasons so that they can get back to their previous yields so that they can feed their families. Both of those kinds of work have to happen simultaneously. And I think when we talk about things like religious trauma or even um, just broadly marginalization, you have to have a kind of confronting of the forces of marginalization, forces that I would call evil, forces that I would call um, sinful, forces that are are oppressing and hurting other people. And I think we should confront those forces, um, those those powers. And I think we have to do that in a way that is um, strong and that is unashamed. I think there's also steps that have to be taken in that kind of adaptation, the compassion, where we reach out to people who have been forced to the margins and hurt while they're there. And we have to think of ways that we can help walk with them through their pain, 
that we can help hear their stories. We can begin to uh, pool resources to help to elevate them, to provide them opportunities for education, to have access to resources that the marginalized don't often have access to. Yeah. We can. This is one of the reasons why, by the way, you talk about um, what about religion? We can talk about the bad things that religion does. But in history, religion can also be a force for good. It allows us to pool our resources in a way. I mean, Catholic Charities does great work. The Episcopal Church does great work. Uh, you still have soup kitchens and homeless shelters that are, are run by religious institutions. And so I think we have to both on an individual level and on a corporate level, on a, on a government level, on a community level, I think we have to be working in both those streams. One of the challenges that Radical Love Live and I think other programs have run into is we're being incubated at least within a religious space. That's kind of where where we found our genesis. And we're talking to people who oftentimes have been hurt in religious spaces. What are some good ways to talk with people about their spirituality when they've been hurt in religious spaces? I often use the metaphor for spirituality because I think spirituality is life. And one of the metaphors for life in various religious traditions is water. And I think there are a lot of parched people who don't have access to that water because the sources of the water have become tainted and toxic. So I would always look for what are the small places where you can still access it? The small little little gathering places where there is some water for you. It could be an intentional time of conversation with somebody else who's willing to share life with you, right? You plant the seed. I think, you know, just as an acorn has all it needs within it to eventually grow into the oak tree, in the same way, you can kind of incubate these little kernels that over time will grow. And so for some people, it's little things. It's AA, it's yoga. It's, uh, it's picking up a book, you know, that is going to begin to kind of just germinate these questions. It's then taking those questions over a cup of coffee with a friend. Um, is sometimes it just comes in the form of curiosity. I know a lot of people who engage spirituality through art, and art can say things to us that words never could. I think that you just begin to go on a, on a spiritual scavenger hunt, to look for those little places where there is a little bit of water, and over time you can help it to expand. But I, I think what happens instead is, is we, we ask people to come back to those sources of toxicity for them. And maybe one day they can, but right now they're, they're damaging and they're harmful for them. And I think, I think we al allow people to um, invite us into their journeys and we can just help them to just spot things on the street to say, what about this over there? Could we get curious about this? Could we step into that? A little? And what about this over here? Would that be something that would feel life-giving or comfortable for you? And if a person is a true seeker, if they're truly curious, I think they'll find those little portals where light is kind of popping through, where the water is just dripping through the crack. And if we're willing, we can step into those with them. And it allows them to have spirituality on their terms and not ours. I saw an article the other day in the Wall Street Journal that was about the big denominations losing members, but kind of non-denominational spaces growing. I wonder if in the future these kind of spaces that we're talking about that are totally non-traditional, maybe not even religious, will actually also be on the rise as the SBNRs grow? It's a good question. I, I tend to think these things come in, in uh, like ebbs and flows. 
So we're in a moment right now, I think, where we are seeing two things happen. One, you're seeing the growth of the spiritual, but not religious. But two, I think we're going to see a renewal in religious curiosity. You know, everything in, in American history is reactionary, but I think the megachurch, evangelical kind of expression of faith that captivated so many in the 90s and early 2000s is now giving away to a deeper, more liturgical expression of faith among many of the same people, by the way, that filled those arenas in the 90s. And so um, it's changing, it's shifting, and it is incredibly unpredictable. In fact, that's one of the most predictable things about American religion is that it's totally unpredictable. The, <laughs> the questions that we think people will be asking in 10 years are not going to be the questions people are asking when it comes to religion and spirituality. So you just kind of have to buckle your seatbelt and be along for the ride. Now, a great example of this, I remember when I first got into writing, everything that people wanted you to write about, and I thought it was like the conversation of my lifetime, was the emergent church. Mm, I remember <laughs> right, that. Yes, they... What even was that, right? I mean, there were books on it, organizations, there were conferences. It yeah. was like trending on everything. Yeah. Now it's like, you know, it was just a blink in time. Yeah. It was nothing. It was a cultural phenomenon. Right. And we thought that those questions were the questions we would have for a hundred years. And they were there for a minute. And then we moved on. They were just a portal to a new set of questions. And that's often religion. It's you open a door to a door to a door to a door. If you start to think that you know what is behind the door that's three doors away from you, you're, you're going to be uh, mistaken. It's just very, very difficult to predict American religion and the questions that are going to be central to its formation. Well, that last question was really big. Now I'll get it really particular. Um, one of the driving forces behind some of the changes in American religion right now are specifically around LGBTQ inclusion. There are denominations that are dividing and, and arguments between people within organizations. And I know I read some of your articles about church clarity, and I know that that's something that, that you shed light on frequently. What do you think that churches and institutions can do to better reach out to LGBTQ people? It's hard because part of the language of reaching out, we have to be careful with, right? Because it sort of objectifies or tokenizes LGBT people, or it can, like that they are, they're the prize, and we have to find a way to capture them. I think instead, part of the work is, in, is internal. It's to create spaces where they would feel comfortable that they might come, that they might show up, rather than us going out and sort of like lassoing them and pulling them in. It's more instead creating a space that would be a kind of magnet where they would see life and be curious about it and feel welcome and loved. I think it's going to be, it's going to look different depending on the, the religious stream that that person is a part of the religious tradition that they're a part of. I think that for more progressive uh, folks, it's going to look one way, and for more conservative folks, it's going to look another way. And I think that there are a lot of progressive um, denominations and churches that are doing a pretty decent job with it um, in terms of, of the percentage of LGBT people who feel included and are um, you know, counting themselves a part of those movements and a lot of those communities. But it's among conservative folks that I think you're having a real um, – they're, they're struggling with that. So I think among conservatives, you're going to have to look at what they believe. And um, until those beliefs change – so you're having – you know, beliefs are uh, – for Christians, beliefs and behaviors are connected. 
hmm. right? Your beliefs and behaviors are not connected. Christians have a word for that, a hypocrite. <laughs> so consistency is sort of we're conditioned toward. So if you're going to update a belief that you're going to naturally, your behavior will change. And if you change a behavior, you're going to have to, it's going to have to be because there's some kind of belief. Otherwise you just live with a kind of cognitive dissonance, which is what a psychologist might talk about. This kind of like, you believe these things that don't make sense. They don't, they don't come together in, in a way that kind of can, yeah. can be understood. So some conservative churches are not going to change in the near future. They're going to be places that LGBT folks are going to perceive as not just unwelcoming, but unsafe. Yep. Mm -hmm. I do think that there is a new kind of conservative church that is arising, that is compromising on this. And evangelicals are highly pragmatic. Uh, they always have been. They're not, they're, they're not ideological as much as they are pragmatic. That when it becomes clear they have to make a kind of compromise, they often make it historically. And to lay a template over this, we would look at the issue of divorce most evangelical churches would still say that you either can't get divorced at all, or if you get divorced, it has to be because of infidelity. But those churches are filled with people who are getting divorced for all kinds of other reasons. They just fell out of love. They get remarried and nobody says anything to them, right? <laughs> they get remarried in those churches. Yes. <laughs> remarried in those churches. And if you're going through a divorce, what do they do for you? They give you a divorce recovery class. They don't go, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, fill out the form because if you are not getting divorced for what we consider to be a biblical reason, then we have to take church discipline against you or kick you out or you can't come. They've decided to kind of reorder so that they put love first, even if there's a disagreement. Part of the reason that we're so focused on this issue is politically motivated and historically motivated because that was an issue that arose in the 1970s with the rise of the religious right. And so we've overemphasized it at the exclusion of other issues. And I think um, just like divorce was was a huge issue because it was tied to the quote unquote breakdown of the nuclear family and it was politicized as well, that the evangelicals and conservative Christians were able to compromise on that and say, yeah, you can serve here. You know, there are still some things you might not be able to do. You might not be able to be a pastor at some of those churches if you're divorced, but like for the most part, divorced people come there and it's a safe space for them. My guess is, is that there will be a whole lot of conservative evangelical churches like that who down on paper would say they'd use some sort of language like, well, you know, ultimately we don't believe this is God's best for you, but we're all sinners. So let's like move on. And I think that you will find that there are going to be some LGBT people. I know some now in churches like that and get along just fine. And for them, it doesn't bother them. For some, that will still not be enough. Right. I think you're going to have a fracturing of conservatives as they try to find a way to make a compromise here that will help them reach people ultimately. Excellent. All right, Jonathan. So we're coming towards the end of our uh, time together. I'm going to ask you a question. It's very broad, but uh, gives you a lot of power. So the question is, if you had the power to change anything related to spirituality, what would you change? I guess I'd say I'd make it easier. I like it. Spirituality has to be something you work at. Mm -hmm. uh, a great example. I started about, gosh, maybe now about four years or five years ago, I started getting into mindfulness meditation. Mm -hmm. I do it regularly. I started with an app and I had racked up like hundreds of days on this app of just like meditating, meditating, meditating. It's just unbelievable uh, number of, of hours. And I was using 
this app to do it. And in fact, I, I'll pull it up right here and just and just see because I've got it up. But on that app right now, I've done 694 sessions. That's 147 hours and 11 minutes, 33 days meditating just through this app. And I don't just use this app to meditate. So I meditate a lot. <laughs> I still today, I went to an Ash Wednesday service in our chapel. Yep. And they they were playing this um, cello while we meditated at the beginning, and my mind's wandering, yeah. and I'm struggling to sit there, and I'm thinking about work, and I'm not centering, and it's just hard work. Just the simple act of coming home to yourself takes a. I've been doing it now for four hundred and something hours, and I'm not an expert at it. I'm not perfect. <laughs> I still struggle with it. And so I, sometimes I wish it was easier. I wish it was just as easy as a choice um, that you could just say, okay, I want to do this. And then you would check it off the list. But I also think that's part of it, right? That spirituality is hard work. Hmm. And there's something that's learned in the hard work, in the resistance. And so I, you know, I talked to a friend recently who's a spiritual director and I said, gosh, I struggle so much with meditating. Sometimes I feel like I don't meditate at all. And she's like, no, no, no. The struggle is meditation. It's the constant coming back to yourself. But I think whatever it is, you work so hard at not being greedy, and then you're, you know, you're a greedy sob, and there's nothing you can do about it, right? You work so hard <laughs> be a good, a good partner or a good boyfriend or girlfriend to your significant other, and then you know you're a really terrible one. You try so hard to be loving to poor people, and then you find yourself treating a homeless person who gets in the way when you're trying to walk down the subway stairs with disdain and condescension, right? You, you move away from the smell of urine and you realize you're not actually as compassionate as you fancy yourself. And so the fact that this stuff takes a lifetime of really hard work sometimes can be a little overwhelming. And uh, I wish spirituality were easier than that. I wish it required less commitment, fewer man hours, I wish it brought less disappointment and failure than it did. And so I guess that would be one thing I would change. Wow. That's a uh, great way to wrap up That's this really uh, conversation. Yeah, that was wonderful. Yeah. So Jonathan Merritt, thank you so much. Uh, do, uh, you want to tell us about any uh, writing projects you have coming up? Well, I'm working on another book, which okay. is uh, probably going to be my most personal, vulnerable, risky book. It's taking me a long, long time to write. My guess is it'll take me another year from now. Right now, the title. I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the title. Please, now that you've teased it, we want to know. Title, yeah. But I'll yeah, tell you the working on. title. Oh, all right, go ahead. Right now, the working title is The Courage to Be Human. Ooh. And the subtitle is Wake Up, Tell the Truth, and Learn to Love Again. I love it, Jonathan. All right, we can't wait. Oh, we can't wait. That's awesome. Jonathan, thank right. you again for your time, not only on, the, uh, on our conversation today, but also uh, sharing your wisdom uh, with us on Sunday night in the live event. It was really powerful. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for listening to Radical Love Live. If you're a first-time listener or you'd like to hear more, you can listen to our podcast archive, including recordings of our live series, on most major podcast platforms. Your support is essential. If you like what you're hearing and appreciate the content of this program, please visit our website at RadicalLove.Live to find out ways that you can help this project with your time and your resources. As always, we'd like to thank our supporters, including the Congregation of St. Savior, as well as the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And we'd also like to thank the Episcopal Church Office of Communication for their continued support. Thanks for listening to Radical Love Live. 
where we explore spirituality outside the boxes.